Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello everyone, and welcome to History in Technicolor, with me, Wolf O'Neill, and... And me, David Crowther. Uh, today's episode is The Private Life of Henry VIII, which is a 1933 British film directed by Alexander Corder, and starring the powerhouse that is Charles Lawton. It opens on the day of Anne Boleyn's execution, and takes us through the life of Henry and all of his remaining wives. Wolf, why, why, did, you, um, why did you pick this film? Uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, Don't I, mention it. I picked it because um, it's a classic of sorts, uh, and I've never seen it. It stars mm-hmm. Charles Lawton, who directed one of my favourite films of all time, In the Night of the Hunter. Uh-huh. Um, and coincidentally, I discovered, based on what we were saying before, that Daniel Day-Lewis has been quoted oh, yes. as considering Charles Lawton the best film actor of his era. No, is that right? Who's he, who's he up against? I mean, I would presume anyone from like the 30s to the 50s. So that's that's pretty big names. What's that? What's that Errol Flynn chap? Is he in the frame? He was wasn't it 1938 that Errol Flynn Robin Hood film we watched? Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, with a fake laugh. So he thinks Charlie Lawton is better than uh, Errol. Yeah, probably better than uh, I guess Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart. Clark Gable. Ooh. Jimmy Stewart? Car- Cary Grant? Nah. Oh. Well, Daniel Lewis is just talking rubbish, isn't he? Let's get him in here. Um, <laughs> Give him a piece of my mind. He's a bit of a recluse, so I doubt that uh, even, with, even uh, with our star power, we could draw him in. Um, <laughs> he's gagging to come in, I've no doubt. Yeah, he'd probably go away and do years of podcast like prep. Um, yes. To be ready. Do you think it... 
He'll go method then, will he, darling? Yeah, he'll, uh, he'll make his own he'll be podcast. Us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, excellent. We don't want that, do we? Maybe we won't ask him. Uh, right. Well, my father, if it means anything to you, my father absolutely adored Charlie Lawton. A little smile came onto his face whenever he was mentioned, which wasn't often, obviously, but, you know. Well, that's nice to know. Would you say that he was what, one of your dad's favourite actors? Him and Margaret Rutherford, basically. I saw this fasc- fascinating photos just yesterday of Margaret Rutherford behind the scenes of a movie when she was in her 70s practising fencing so that she didn't have to use a stunt double. Excellent. Actually, just saying the name Margaret Rutherford makes me laugh. I don't know, how, I don't know what it is. Very, very funny woman. I'll remember anyway. that. Yeah, I mean, she's just very funny. Anyway, moving on. Oh, yeah. David, uh, what did you think of the film? Actually, I thought it was surprisingly fun. Um, you know, it being so old and all the rest of it. But I, I had heard of it an awful lot. And people often get very snooty about the history therein. So it often gets mentioned, yeah. <clears throat> particularly in terms of table manners. Yeah. Uh, but the film was a constant companion in the Crowther family because my mother liked the chucking chicken legs over your shoulder thing. Um, yeah. I thought it was very good. It was, you know, it was quite, it was really fun, surprisingly enough. Yeah. I mean, that's my thoughts exactly. Um, obviously, less references, but. I'd kind of always heard of the film and I had these kind of preconceptions. And then when I watched it, it wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And it was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. Small film, isn't it? It was kind of smaller than I imagined, you know. So I suppose I had in my mind Anne of a Thousand Days, which does its very best to cram all the big historical themes into it. It didn't try and do that at all. It just stuck to what it was. A nice little little comedy. Yeah. I thought that uh, I thought the cast was great. Uh, I thought Charles Lawson was having the time of his life. He was. Elsa Lanchester was absolutely brilliant as mm-hmm. Anne of Cleves. Maybe my favourite performance of the film. That's um, very good, actually. Robert Donut is great in support. Um, he makes Culpepper just a little bit sexy, so I'm like, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> And then I thought that uh, Merle Oberon and Binny Barnes had really good performances as Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, uh, and they added some much-needed pathos to the movie, which obviously you don't get from Henry. I thought it was really funny, genuinely funny. I la- yeah. I burst out laughing, and it's the maybe the stupidest joke in the film, but it was when he punches the chicken and the gravy hits, I think it's Cranmer, in the eye, yes. and... For some reason, that really that really chuckled me. Well, it is. I mean, it's kind of like the thought of Thomas Cranmer, you know, uh, it, my hand offendeth me and therefore I burn it first, you know, all that grand stuff. It's rather <laughs> nice to see Cranmer hit in the eye by a bit of gravy. Yeah, I thought it was wonderful. Yes. And yes, he was loving it, wasn't he, uh, Charlie Lawton? And he has a, he seemed to have a talent for buffoonery. So there was one stage at supper when he, he leans over one side and listens to somebody telling him one thing and leans over to the other and he has a silly expression on his face. And it's sort of physical comedy, which just works really well. Yeah, I thought I thought it's brilliant. There was, I wrote down a bunch of lines which I thought were really funny. Um, Ooh, so did I. One of which was when Henry's trying to decide if he should marry Anne of Cleves and they're discussing the portrait that we all famously know of. And Cranmer turns to him and says, your grace has no faith in German paintings. 
And here, and Henry laughs. I have no faith in German beauty. <laughs> I love the lady at the execution who's like, oh, poor Anne Boleyn. I do feel so sorry for her. And then badges that woman in front to take off her hat because she can't see the execution block. Yes. Yes. They love that, didn't they? They love the uh, sort of uh, uh, group scenes. Actually, one gag that um, I thought was particularly good, there was a, there was a chat going on within the ladies of the court and uh, they were talking about the fact that you know Anne was having her head cut off and she said well that's what they call chop and change <laughs> so pretty that's a pretty good gag you know anyway. I, I thought the comedy was that um we'll mention it again later but the comedy was really smart throughout the scene uh the card game with Anne and Henry I thought was brilliant um him running around the hall screaming for money I really enjoyed. I thought the chat between the French executioner and the British executioner, yes, where the British bloke thinks that the French are coming to take all the executioner's jobs away. It it was great. It felt like it it was a modern sketch that had been put into an old movie. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, it sort of changed the lens, didn't it? That, um, you know, all the sort of portentous... I mean, also, I spent 18 months doing Henry VIII on the podcast, and our attitudes towards Henry VIII are almost hysterical these days. Um, and, of course, he's taught all the time in the curriculum. I mean, he's taken very seriously, and it was very nice to watch a film where he was taken not seriously at all. And all the various, you know, inequities or big events of his reign were just, you know, basically ignored. It was, it was, it was good. It was a relief. Yeah, I, I I completely agree. I thought it was really fun. Um, and I think we're going to say a lot of great things about it. One of which will come up again later. But I was relatively pleased with the film's treatment of each of Henry's wives, the portrayals and the representations. I thought they were more nuanced than I anticipated going in, um, especially when you know about like the chicken chucking. Did you ever feel it was too hammy by any chance? It was... I mean, I expected it to be hammy, and it kind of was in a Errol Flynn, uh, Robin Hood kind of way, but it seemed to be knowingly so. I don't know. I can't really explain it. I think I viewed it through the lens of watching a film, which I would assume, it being 1933, was always going to be different from the sort of things I'm used to looking, seeing now, and therefore I probably made a lot of allowances for it that I might not have made if it was just released right now. Interesting. It did seem to me from a different time. A... Yeah. Uh, we haven't done many films that old, um, so it's a good one for us to do. Um, yeah. Did you really have, do you have any negatives? Anything you didn't like about the film? Not really. Um, I mean, I'm judging it on that basis that it's a, it's a light comedy um, and it's a 1933 movie. So there are, there are things in it in terms of production values and all the rest of it, you just suspend your disbelief, don't you? So, you know, you're not, you haven't got any CGI or any of that stuff. Um, so no, I mean, it took a very specific view as we'll talk in history about each of the wives and their character characteristics. Um, and, you know, there's some history stuff, which I, you know, clearly isn't, isn't very accurate, but uh, no, there's nothing I didn't think, Oh, I wish they hadn't done that. Oh God, that's terrible. Isn't it? You know, Good. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I felt. Uh, just a bit of a backstory uh, around the film before we move on. Um, upon its release, it was incredibly successful. It became right. the 12th best performing film at the US box office that year. 
It helped establish Corda and Lawton as box office draws. Corda then got a 16-movie deal with United Artists after this. And it helped launch a number of other actors into the movie, such as Merle Oberon. I think this was her first film. And Charles Lawton won the Best Actor Oscar that year. And he was the first British actor to ever win it. And this was the first yeah. British film to ever be nominated for Best Picture. So Good Lord. So interesting. It set some precedent. And Alexander Corda was the first filmmaker to ever receive a knighthood uh, here. And this was because of his work that he did after this, where he was a producer, a writer, a director, and he helped set up various film industries and production companies. Um, in, and these led to such achievements as The Four Feathers, The Thief of Baghdad, and The Third Man, which is a literal masterpiece. Well, there you go. Well done, well done Alex. I'm sure he's pleased. I'm sure he is. So, David, this is where uh, your expertise will come in. How do you think the film depicts Henry as a character, and possibly as a king? Uh, is he a fully rounded character, or are we in Bill and Ted territory? I think he's a caricature, isn't he? Um, what we're seeing is a a buffoon type figure, which is quite interesting because at around that time, the way I think it's I think it's A. J. Pollard. His view of Henry was the historian's view was in the ascendancy, and that view was very unlike today. That view was of Henry VIII, Henry the Eighth as this paragon of virtues, a sort of visionary who made the changes he did because of a, a visionary strategy, invented the British Navy, you know, very ref, uh, reverential towards Henry. Absolutely, completely different from now. So in 1933, I would have imagined the buffoonery uh, would have come as a bit of a shock. I'm not sure about that, to be honest, but I would have thought that in historical terms, Henry was still being seen in a very positive light. So the fact that he comes across as this buffoon, there's no discussion also about the issues of the reign. You know, there's almost nothing, there's nothing about the Reformation. The only non-private life thing that comes up, if you like, is um, he keeps mentioning the Habsburgs and the Valois, you know, war between France and Germany. And that only in a very passing way. So I don't think it's, we're seeing a comedy and we're seeing a caricature. It's not a painted in picture. Yep, I completely agree. I think it's fascinating. I read quite a few, this is the impression I always had. And then I read enough quotes to support this feeling uh, one of them was from uh, film critic michael uh, koreski where he said that aspects of the performance remain culturally definitive versions of henry the eighth um, this idea that this film has implanted this impression of the of the man that has kind of become the new benchmark for how we think about him and definitely I can't be certain of this, but I feel like when I was growing up and I guess thinking about other things like horrible histories or how I never learned about Henry other than probably in primary school. And then all you want to do is concentrate on the gory details. Uh, maybe I did a bit about the Reformation, but I, this is probably how I have this like mental picture in my head of him without having seen this film. And I find that interesting. He's quite different, I think, than he is... In, for example, for Anne of a Thousand Days, which is the, the thing I keep comparing to, or and indeed he's very he's different in many ways from uh, A Man for All Seasons, 
where he's in both, he's rather more fully rounded and people, they're filmmakers taking an attempt to interpret him. But there are key things where I agree with you. This vision of Henry is definitive, that he is larger than life, that he's extremely loud, that he's very self-centered and very self-opinionated and that he's, you know, he's very careless of everybody around him. I think all those things come out in this rendition and have remained, you know, unchallenged because, frankly, they're kind of true. Um, how did you feel about the portrayal of Henry as the film progressed? I'm, I'm thinking most about when he starts to meet Catherine Howard. Did your impressions of the film change? Uh, not at all, actually. I think it, it was quite interesting, the way they did it, that Henry VIII's story is of a very attractive, very dynamic young man who charms everybody with enormous charisma. And we tend to think about Henry VIII as the the Henry VIII at the end of his life, when he's fat and gross and rather tyrannical, very suspicious of the people around him, where he's killed many of his ministers. And you see that progression a little bit, in quite a trivial way. But you see him getting older, losing his physical prowess, such as the wrestling scene, for example, and they sort of put the makeup on him. And he ends up with Catherine Parr. I mean, what's also, what's quite interesting, in fact, it's probably more interesting than Henry for me, were, was the way that his wives were presented in the kind of mythology around around them. Yeah, I completely agree. I can't wait to talk about that. And actually, we'll get on to it in a second. All I was going to say is that the biggest, one of the biggest surprises for me um, after the portrayal of Henry's wives was how we get from the place where we start with Henry at the beginning of the movie. And, you know, he's throwing chicken legs and he's in my, he doesn't do it, but in my mind, he's slapping ladies' bottoms as he goes around the castle. Um, you yeah. know, I know he doesn't do it. He just has that kind of persona to him while chuckling. And I can see like the Denethor tomato scene with the tomato juice running down his chin. I'm like, oh, yes, this is yeah. him all the time. But mm. it progresses to a point where he falls madly in love. He starts being nice. He's like, let's release everyone mm. from the tower, which is um, comedic. But then he starts breaking down. He cries in front of all his own men. He can't bear to watch the execution and we get the close-ups of his face in 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 sheer pain and this is not the person that i ever thought he was or would be and i was surprised that they had developed his character that way through that romance considering the caricatured nature of him from the beginning yes it is quite interesting isn't it that and in a sense that's why i think the um more effort in a way has gone on to describe the wives because they are each different from each other in quite traditional ways, actually, but quite interesting ways. And it's certainly, you're right, it does show Henry's character in development. And I think a standard belief about Henry was that he was genuinely gutted by Catherine's uh, affair with Thomas Culpepper and that it brought his age home to him because the age difference was so great. And that actually it turned him into a more tyrannical character or it's part of the process of turning him so, which isn't really actually described in the movie. 
but yes, I think it's accepted that uh, Catherine, the Catherine Howard affair hit him very hard. I don't think he broke down in a Privy Council meeting, actually. I think, anyway, well, it's a historical accuracy thing, but it's essentially everybody told Cranmer that he was going to have to be the guy that did it. And I think Cranmer actually left a letter on a pew in a church so that Henry would pick that up and read the letter first. I think it might have been one of Catherine's confessions. Not quite sure about that. But it is Cranmer that tells him, but it's not in a Privy Council meeting. In the film, was it Cromwell who he picks up and throws down on the table, like choking him out? Well, there's, it was indeed. And there's a, there is a story about Henry and Cromwell, which we don't quite know whether to believe or not, but there is a contemporary report that Henry actually hit Cromwell around the head and Cromwell came out of the meeting, realised that people knew it and sort of passed it off as a joke. But um, it's probably reflecting that story. Interesting. Um, There is a little bit more basis for fact, and we'll come to this, in a lot of these kind of crazy scenes, little hints of it than I maybe anticipated from this caricatured movie. Um, Okay, moving on to Henry's Wives. Um, What do you think um, the film's views are towards them? And you can pick any of them or all of them. Well, I think they're quite... I mean, they're obviously caricatured in in a sense. You know, they're they're not given much time and therefore you can't really develop any genuine complexity. But they're not... They're on their side as much as on Henry's side. I don't know if that that describes it well enough. Um, It made me... The very first screen made me laugh quite a lot uh, where it said that uh, Catherine of Aragon was essentially saying that Catherine of Aragon was too too well-behaved to be of any interest, which, of course, is, you know, wiping out a fascinating few decades of history, which probably led to the, which led to the Reformation and all that stuff. And that's just dismissed in a line, look, she's really boring, so we're not going to talk about her. Um, and then the Anne Boleyn is only done at the end, isn't she? So we see her and you get all the famous lines, you know, I just have a, uh, a little neck, for example. These are all lines that she's known, known for. I don't know if you want me to go through each one of them, but um, they do follow a historical trope, each one of them. Yeah, the movie does caricature each of them into their roles. Well, int- interestingly, the one who was least according to an accepted trope is Jane Seymour, because Jane Moore, Jane Seymour was presented as a fool, essentially, as a bit of an airhead. You know, she interrupts Henry when he's in a state meeting just to ask about whether she should wear the pearls or the whatevers. And that's an unusual presentation of Jane Seymour, I think. She's normally presented a little bit as a as a rather po-faced, serious-type person who uh, is thrust on Henry and, of course, tragically dies in childbirth. In this thing, she was presented as a bit of an airhead, which I don't think I'd seen before. Yeah, so definitely Jane Seymour was probably the one I got the least information out of. Catherine yeah. Parr more so, but still, she's so caricatured in that moment. It's really, you, you get quite a lot from it. Hmm. Overall, I thought that, yes, it's this is far from a modern film. And I, I'm not going to argue that it's ahead of his time in its attitudes towards women. But I was pleasantly surprised 
by the varied and in some respects developed characters that it gave these women it, and also the the numerous supporting characters who had all these standout moments and the fact that they were always having these discussions around the around the castle around uh, the the bedchamber you get all these different interactions where the women are kind of aware of what's going on and their role and what's going to happen, the what's going to happen with the next marriage, how they're similar to each other. And there were a lot of really nice little moments uh, throughout, some of which I'll try and pick up as we go through. To me, I guess the two obviously standouts are Catherine Howard and Anne of Cleves. And I thought that Anne of Cleves was fascinating. Um, so Elsa Lanchester was Charles Lawton's wife. Um, in, oh, is that right? in real life. And I do think that this played into her role in this film. They wanted it to be a movie they could both star in. And I think originally it was just going to be about Henry and Anne of Cleves. And then they decided to change the film. So they expand it. And what I got was a take. I mean, I'm not that well versed in, in, in this period of time, but I got a take of Anne of Cleves where she was smart and cunning and she was outwitting Henry and she was making a fool out of him. And all I knew when the, the film got going was that, oh, the general consensus was that she was ugly and Henry didn't want to marry her. So he divorced her immediately. And the painting was a lie. And what I actually got was this person who had a romance back in Germany, didn't really want to marry Henry. And, you know, she's, she puts on these fake, uh, she pulls these faces, does this slightly silly voice deliberately, I think, to irritate him. She doesn't bow down to him. And then she turns out to be a card shark. And she she battles him in their bedchamber when he, you know, has gone there reluctantly to consummate the marriage. And she manages to bring out this fun side of Henry and they battle over this card game all night long until she wins loads of estates, loads of wealth. She wins a divorce and Henry ends up saying, uh, you're the nicest girl I ever married. And mm. she gets to go off and have a great life probably go back i think she goes back to germany and gets to go be with the person she actually loves it's i don't know she 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 comes down your way i think doesn't she well as the house in lewis which is hers there is but i thought and you could correct me i thought she never lived here even though it was like bequeathed to her she didn't live in lewis no you're absolutely right um yeah, tragically, my only memory of Anne of Cleve's house is I walked there on my first day in Lewis and there was a train ticket stuck in a dog poo right outside. <laughs> so had somebody placed the, the ticket in the dog poo or had the dog pooed on the ticket? Um, or had or had the ticket been provided with additional poo? I have no idea. Some sort of promotion or something, you know. I can imagine, you know, extra poo with your ticket. I mean, that is often how people view Southern Rail, so... Um... <laughs> yes, I certainly do. Anyway, tragically, that's my only knowledge yes. of the Anne of Cleves property. Um... I could be wrong, but I think she lives most of the rest of her life in in England. But I'm, I can't be 100% sure about that. I should should have checked it out. I think in the film, she actually gets to go back to Germany... Um, which I think completes the fake kind of story they've created for her, where she has this person right. she can return to. Um, and there's that funny scene where he sat outside their bedchamber with his head in his hands because he loves her, but he knows that Henry's about to sleep with her. So, you know, he's all depressed. Uh, I thought it was good. There were little touches. And um, I just thought that her character was one I hadn't seen and was a depiction of Anne of Cleves I would never have predicted. Yeah, there's a couple of. I think you're absolutely right that it's much more 
it's much more away from the familiar traditional received history than the others. There is a sort of tradition that suggests that maybe she was playing Henry and that her aim was because Henry became a laughing stock throughout Europe. Very famously, at one stage, it was proposed that he marry Mary of Guise, who becomes a very, uh, very talented and powerful regent of Scotland. Um, and she's horrified at the very thought because she doesn't want to go and she doesn't want to be have her head chopped off. And Henry and Francis the first, his contemporary in, as king of France, is absolutely appalled. I mean, I think Francis puts four wives aside so the french take a very different approach to this whole thing i may be exaggerating before but certainly one and the french did that all the way through the uh valois dynasty when they had problems with not being able to get have children they put a wife aside and the king remarried much easier than henry had to go through with catherine of aragon um so i agree there are some some traditions that says look she's playing him but it's the one you were talking about was much more the standard history. But there is an occasion where Anne does come back to see Henry and after, and they correspond. So that thing about Henry actually getting on quite well once marriage is off the cards with Anne of Cleves is actually, I think, substantiated. Yes, uh, I found that also in my research, but bearing in mind all my research came from your previous research when I listened to a podcast. <laughs> right. Okay, um, you poor thing. But I enjoyed it. Um, I, think, I don't think I men- mentioned Southern Rail tickets in Dog Poo, though, did I? Uh, no, but, uh, well... Shall I move away from that topic now? Uh, yes. Uh, it was okay. leading me on to the point, though, that at least with this character, and we can build on it with the others, that while there is some basis in historical fact, what we're getting to the point is that you'd argued that um, each of the characters is given more authority over their own lives and their own story a little bit more and it's yeah. considering the film is called the private life of henry the eighth um the, each of the chapters is distinctly about the wives almost more than henry um yes and anne's chapter she is a very strong character dominating the scene and it's kind of what she brings out in henry and uh, i think she gets a, a really good story rather than being brushed aside for Catherine Howard and dismissed as I don't know I just think she could have been handled really badly yes, in a, in a in a crass comedy movie and she's not she's given a, a, like a yes. star turn when it comes to Catherine Howard uh, I have it's a little bit harder for me to read this one because to some extent I think she is given she's done a disservice but then other times I think that she probably has the biggest role in the film after Henry and there's a lot of nuance to her performance and a lot of tragedy an emotion that genuinely comes through because I guess like we know that we don't want Henry to marry any of these women really. Like we know he's not a good match for them. Um, and she's this young, this young girl with it, like her life ahead of her and she can do anything. And she, instead of being with Culpepper with, and cause they obviously forged this relationship in the film earlier on where they're getting on, they've got all the romantic, the classic like romantic scenes together. We know she's then going to go away with this like giant beast of a man. Um, so I think that Catherine and Culpepper's relationship is developed quite nicely. And in some ways, I think that they have a tragic romance where I guess in like conventional film terms, we would kind of want them to be together 
but they can't. They're like the tragic lovers. I think that's true. I think she's quite sympath- quite sympathetically dealt with within the traditional view of her, I think is the way I put it, that she's not painted as a complete gold digger, airhead, but she is a little bit. You know, it's suggested in one of the screens that she was enjoying her crown. So it's there's not just it's not just the tragedy. There is a bit of that old view of Catherine Howard as being a sort of grasping airhead who just wants the crown and then can't keep it in her trousers, as it were. And it, it's more it's it's done more positively than that. There's a genuine love affair with Cole Pepper that she's cut off from. I agree. It's not the modern story. The modern story takes note of the fact that she had a pretty awful childhood in Norfolk's household and she was probably raped and she was certainly exploited. And when she came to London, people came with her from Norfolk's household and Norfolk used her in order to try and get to the king very specifically. So this didn't go all that way to show the complexity of Catherine Howard's situation and the real tragedy for her. It sort of goes halfway, I think. It's reasonably sympathetic, but within traditional uh, parameters. Yeah, agreed. And I does that makes sense. It does. And I think the same goes for Anne Boleyn. Um, and to an extent, Jane Seymour. Yes, they often, especially in the early portion of the movie when Henry's at his most kind of out of control state, um, these two characters do often suffer the brunt of his his like remarks and his callousness towards them. Um, Henry only cares that Jane's died, if he does at all, for approximately five seconds um, before he's thinking about the baby. Um, and with Anne Boleyn, obviously, he they smush the time events together and he's waiting with Jane Seymour almost um you know with the ring in his hand ready to get married and he's waiting he's tri- asked them to set these guns off so as soon as she's executed he'll hear the blast and then he can marry Jane immediately but that being I think it's yeah I don't think it's quite that quick but certainly the the story was that he married Jane as soon as he could it was pretty lightning I thought Anne was given a a bum deal actually to be honest because okay. you don't get any of you don't get any of her personality. You know, she was a real character, was Anne Boleyn, a real player, um, very clever, very manipulative, um, really wanted to be part of it, I think. Um, and she gave up, a, consciously gave up a lot in m- marrying Henry. She decided to, I think she decides to give way and marry him because she weighs things up and decides, right, well, okay, I can do this and it's worth me doing this. And you don't get any of that. You know, you just get the story of her death. So I think she's sold short, not quite as short as poor old Catherine, of course. But, you know, that's an interesting view. And I hadn't considered that too much. Um, I think what I'm referring to is that considering that we start on her execution day and there's all these jokes being made about the execution, everything going on around her, the film still pauses to actually give her time to speak, give her a few Mm. quiet moments and I actually quite enjoyed the moment where it could be viewed as comedy, but I, I enjoyed the moment where Anne is looking out on her last day and Jane Seymour is looking out on her wedding day. And they both say, oh, what a lovely day it is. Paraphrasing yes. slightly. I hadn't noticed that. But yeah. and, 
I thought it was a really interesting line that delivers uh, a little bit of pathos and it connects the two characters and it shows you kind of tragically what is going to come for so many of them, um, that the Mm. next one in line is the same as the one who came before. I just thought that considering that we're all waiting for the execution, this is why we've come here for these gory details. They don't really revel in the tragedy too much. They quickly just kind of brush it under and move on to the next bit so that it can stay lighthearted. But yes. overall, I, I think uh, it, it does some really interesting stuff, particularly with Anne of Cleves, in, in my eyes. True. I think I think the the one who I felt slightly... Um, I mean, you're absolutely right. This is a comedy. It's not the place to get, to get really deep about the their characteristics. I thought Anne, um, Catherine Parr was, again, rather sold rather short because, yes. you know, she sold as this sort of motherly figure, which is the traditional story. I think she's a much more complex person than that. She's a real um, radical in terms of Protestantism at a time when Protestantism is very young and very risky, especially in Henry's court. She has quite a wild love affair with Thomas Seymour. You know, she's actually a very interesting woman, is Catherine. Of all the Henry's wives, actually, in general terms, not just in this film, I think she's the one that profits from greater study. And do you think that's perhaps reflective of um, a lack of knowledge about her in the 30s when they're making this film? Like a lack lack of history? It's an interesting question. I don't know, really. She is very much dismissed, I think, as, oh, the last wife who survives. And somehow the interest in her relationship with Thomas Seymour, the fact that the Princess Elizabeth comes to stay with her and Thomas Seymour, and there's sort of an implication that Seymour messes around with a very young Elizabeth who's 13 years of age in a a rather inappropriate way, that um, Catherine Parr's a very clever person. She writes very thoughtfully about religion, uh, and she tragically dies quite young. She's got a great story. It's not right for this film, though, it's got to be said. They probably made, in film-making terms, made exactly the right decision just to go for the standard trope. Yeah, and ultimately, for all the things that I'm saying, it it is a movie about, like, caricatures. And it reminds you that with that final line where just when I've kind of begun to think that they've shown me a few more nuances to Henry, he's then scoffing down food, really old, really fat. And then he turns to the camera and he's like... Um, the best of all my wives is the worst, or whatever the line mm-hmm. is. Um, before eating another, another pheasant, and it, it definitely undermines any of the good work they maybe have done before that. But I still, I still think there's some decent stuff going on. Um, mm-hmm. so we've talked about it a lot, but what do you think? Kind of to summarize, the film's attitude towards history is, and how much do you think that our perceptions of Henry and his wives? have changed since when this film was made in 1933. Maybe we've maybe we've covered a lot of that already. I think probably have. I, mean, I think the thing that always gets mentioned in a very po-faced way by historians is the fact that he was a very sophisticated man, was Henry. This was the most sophisticated court in the land by far. There's no way he'd have chucked chicken legs around. There's no way he'd have whacked a pheasant with his hand and spurted gravy into Cranmer's eyes. He very probably 
would very rarely have eaten in the grand hall with all his these other courtiers around. So that's what people get sort of snooty about. I don't think it's there to tell history. I think it's there. What Corder does is just say, look, there are all these well-accepted popular history tropes about this man. And he makes comedy out of it. And in some cases, as with Anne of Cleves, he riffs a bit more in order to create a more interesting story. You know, it's not it's not respectful of history, but I don't think it's any less of a good film for that. I completely agree. Um, it's entertainment um, from start to finish uh, and just uses history as a little backbone so that it can give us the comedy. And to be honest, the comedy comes from those tropes and those caricatures that you've mentioned. Hmm. Um, and it just amps everything up. Considering it's 1933, I think on reflection, maybe it's a, this is a bad comparison, but I think it's kind of like a black and white version of The Tudors with John... Um, Reese Myers, where actually for 33, like this is, this is, there's lots of excess, there's lust, there's um, bawdy jokes, romance, death. Like it's taking the Tudors and making it really fun. And it's, you know, I hate that. 70 I, different... I hate that show. Well, I'm not seeing it, but do you get, do you get my point that it's like mass entertainment in terms of like, yes. what it's doing? And it's just, we have to, except that mass entertainment in 33 is different to mass entertainment now. Yeah. Yeah. Entirely. With a lot of the history, we've covered so much of it already. And essentially what we're saying is most of it's fabricated, exaggerated. um, And obviously over time, we've changed our perceptions of some of these people. So any grains of truth, I think are diluted. I guess the few things that surprised me, the scene with the French executioner was true. As far as I know, that Henry brought this French ex- executioner in. He did. Um, that surprised me because it felt like a really good sketch that had been made up. But uh, overall, like you've been saying, the depiction of Henry goes against most general beliefs. Um, obviously, you've you've said it all before. He's far more respectable than this film is going to present. Um, and was there anything else that you'd written down that had jumped out at you about the historical accuracy or inaccuracy? Don't think so. You know, I I wouldn't judge it particularly as on its historical accuracy because it wasn't really pretending to be a history movie looking at um looking at the issues and bringing them out. Uh it was a comedy. Agreed. Um I thought it was really yeah, entertaining. Uh I would highly recommend it. Would you recommend it, David? Yes, I think it's well worth an hour and a half. And the delightful thing about it was that it only was an hour and a half. So nice watching old movies, which don't go on for hours, apart from the hideous nightmare that is gone with the wind, of course. Um, But lovely, an hour and a half, quick, you know, fun. It's great. Good. Uh, What would you rate it as a film? Uh, I should probably go for seven or eight. I mean, it's not a great movie. You know, it's not... I don't know what great movies there are. It's not the Shawshank Redemption or Good Vibrations, <laughs> dare I say. Dare I say. Yep. But it's... Um, it's no Chalet Girl. It's no Chalet Girl. Well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, but it is, within its light, it's great. So maybe a seven. Okay, yeah. I was thinking about a six, um, but we're in the same position. And I guess for history, yeah. I was thinking a one or a two. Ooh, you really went low. Uh, I mean, I went five just because it follows a 
a backbone of things that are sort of accepted tropes. But yeah, I could go lower than four without okay, well, wanting to kill um, myself. It's arbitrary. I could go higher because I defer a little bit to you on this, but uh, I think I was. it's not a critique of the film. It's just a, a recognition that it's mm. going to do whatever it wants and it will use the history of where it works for it and where it doesn't, it gets rid of it. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, David. I think now, I think we've come to the end. Okay, very good. It was, it was fun. I enjoyed watching that. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And as always, we will uh, see you on the Facebook page for a discussion. Yes, do do come and have a look, come along and uh, and comment. Thank you, and goodbye. Are you not entertained? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.